0: So at this point, I imagine for the last 10 minutes, you've had the same question, maybe one of two questions. The first would be, why is the 30-year-old so strained getting up from off the floor? But the second is, did did the pastor really just show a clip from Star Wars in a church service? And yes, yes, I did. Now you might be wondering, is he really going to double down on the Star Wars and use it as an intro to his sermon? Yes, yes I am. This will either be the absolute best or worst five minutes of the service for you. I don't know if there's any in between. But that is an epic scene from an epic movie. And I promise that it connects with our scripture this morning. And not just because we are going to read Jesus saying, Greater love has none than this, to lay down one's life for his friends. Although that is connection enough, I, I, I merit. But if you've seen the movie, you know that Obi-Wan is training and is mentoring Luke Skywalker to become a Jedi Knight. But Luke's training is not complete at this point. In fact, it has really just begun. There are many lessons that Luke still needs to learn. And there are central questions that Obi-Wan or the movie has raised that have yet to be answered. For Luke, Obi-Wan's death is crushing because he is losing a mentor who has so much more to teach him. For the audience, Obi-Wan's death is crushing because we know that he holds the answers to so many questions that we have. Both Luke and the audience wish we had more time with Obi-Wan. Or at least one final chance to receive guidance, to ask questions, to get answers, and to be trained. In Star Wars, we don't get that chance. And in many stories and books and movies, we don't get that final scene, those final words of wisdom, that final speech. But in John's gospel, we do. See how I made that work? Nailed it. In John's gospel, we get a final speech from Jesus to his disciples, a final scene between Jesus and his disciples where they can receive their last words of wisdom, ask their final questions, and receive their final training. This takes place during the Last Supper. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the Last Supper is a matter of a chapter at most. But for John, the Last Supper takes up a quarter of his gospel, five chapters. And in the midst of these teachings, there are four words that I want to lift to you. Well, four words and then a lot of other words around those four words. The first word is blessed. The first word that I want to lift up from the farewell discourse is blessed. But how we talk about being blessed, or how we get to talking about blessing, might be surprising. We are in John 13. If you have your Bibles, it is printed in your lifeline. And hey, if you need a Bible, they're not just for little kids, you know. We're giving them away for free at our welcome table. We do that each and every week. If you need a Bible, if you have a friend that needs a Bible, take one. And you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him. And that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put his clothes on and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? he asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Before Jesus goes through the arrest and trial and crucifixion, he wants to leave his disciples with a new understanding of what it means to be blessed. But I have to go and do it again. I've got to go to the Greek. The word that Jesus uses here could also be translated as happiness. And I mention that because in our culture, we use blessed a lot to mean a lot of different things. And we use happy a lot to mean a lot of different things. But if you combine the two, I think you get close to what Jesus meant. Oftentimes, we talk about being blessed in today's culture, and what we mean is lucky fortunate we got a good parking spot we're blessed we won a contest likewise when we use happy we're usually talking about some momentary feeling i hit all the green lights on the way to church today happy now if you travel down Minneville road that actually is a state of happiness now i don't mean for my examples to be small and trivial but when we talk about blessing and happiness often what we are talking about is something that will go away at some point. I am happy when I am on vacation, but soon I will be back at work and not as happy. I am blessed to get a good parking spot, but sometimes I'm not blessed and I have to walk really far. But when the Bible talks about blessing and happiness, it's talking about an ultimate state, something that never goes away. The best example I can give for that is being a parent. Now, I want to bring the kids back into this. Kids, and I'm truly sorry to be a little bit vulgar here. Kids, where are we supposed to go to the bathroom? In the bathroom. On the potty, right? I got this text about a week ago from my wife Quote, I took Patrick's pull up off and told him to meet me in the bathroom. He ran into our room. Tinkled on the floor, and then jumped in the puddle. I asked my son about it later that night, and he said, I slip on the floor. Again, I apologize for telling such a vulgar story in church, but when you have to deal with something like that as a parent, we're not talking about blessing or happiness in the way that Culture normally talks about blessing or happiness. There's nothing blessed about cleaning tinkle off a floor. And yet, being a parent is a blessed state. It's a state of happiness that never goes away. A quick aside last weekend, I was in Michigan doing a wedding for a good friend of mine from high school, and I went by myself. I was there by myself with my friends, and yet, all I could do was think about how much I missed my son. There was an 11-month-old who was a ring bearer, and every time I saw him in a cute little ring bearer outfit, I just wanted to hug my kid. Being a parent somehow brings you to this state of blessing that never goes away. And it's this latter sense of happiness. It's this sense of blessedness as a perpetual state that is what Jesus gets at in the first part of this farewell address. And that's the key to getting this story about foot washing. Because washing feet is gross. It really is, no matter what the kids say. It was the job of the lowest servant. And typically, if the servant wasn't there, someone would step up to do it, or you'd take turns washing each other's feet. Except the disciples don't in this scene. Can't you see them in your mind's eye, standing there looking at each other, an ancient game of chicken? Who's going to blink first? And on some level, we really understand this story. We know that true love looks like a rabbi, a teacher, a master, washing the feet of his students and servants. We know that true love looks like a mother cleaning up a puddle of tinkle, or a child caring for an aging parent. But there are two things that I want to point out in this story. The first is that, remember we are in John's gospel here. And in John's Gospel, we get the strongest, most consistent picture of Jesus as divine out of all the Gospels. Remember the opening prologue. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made through him. We get huge miracles like raising the dead. And we get a Jesus who performs these miracles with swagger. We have I am statements that are clearly a nod towards Jesus being God. And then we have a story about foot washing. And the point is this, my friends. What we see in this episode is nothing less than the God of the universe, the creator of all there is, the all-powerful Lord of hosts, washing feet. Our God washes feet. And then Jesus says that anyone who does likewise will be blessed. The world will tell you that you are blessed if you have the ability to pay somebody to do an undesirable job. The world will tell you that you are blessed if you don't have to stoop low, if you don't have to risk your pride. The world will tell you that you are blessed if you can rise up the class ladder, if you can become rich and powerful and important. But God says that you are blessed if you serve others. God says that you are blessed if you reach out in love. God says that you are blessed if you don't think of anyone as lesser than you. God says that you're blessed if you wash feet, which turns everything upside down. And that's why we need church. We need the church to call us out into service. We need the church to call us to go on mission trips. We need the church to ask us to serve the poorest in our communities through bread and fishes or like how one of our small groups serves at the Hildebarg Center. We need church to call us to give and to sacrifice some of our money so that others can benefit through the ministries of the church. Because without the church calling us to do this, without the church reminding us that blessing and happiness come, not through accumulating wealth and status, but from divesting, the voice of the world will drown out the voice of God. But when the church calls us to sacrifice or to service, when the church calls us to empty of ourselves, we are put into a vulnerable place. When you give away 2%, 5%, 10% of your income, you aren't able to save as much. When you go to a foreign country, particularly a poor country, you are in a vulnerable situation. When you serve the poor, you are brought face to face with the awkward truth that there are have-nots in our community while we have more than enough. So the natural inclination is to not want to go to those places, which is where the second word comes in, trust. John 14 says, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me so that you, may be, that you also may be where I am. Sorry, I've said those words so many times preaching at funeral services that you just get into the rhythm of whatever translation you're most used to. So that's why I trip up over... A different translation. Speaking of translations, the Common English Bible came out a couple years ago, and I'm pretty sure it came out just to make you buy more Bibles, but it translates this verse, don't be troubled, trust in God, trust also in me. Now I think I like that word trust more than I like believe. Nothing against belief. Belief is great, but in our post-enlightenment world, belief becomes much more intellectual cerebral ethereal not unlike my sermons trust is much more experiential and what i mean by that is that to trust is that trust is something that is gained or lost based on experience trust in god comes from going through situations where you needed god and finding that god shows up and is faithful Trust is born out of the crucible of lived experience. It is gained after a life of walking the road of discipleship. Put another way, who has jumped into a swimming pool? Let's back up a little bit. Who's excited that the pools are open? Yeah. Yeah. So we have had Patrick in swim class the the past few months to get him used to being in the water so that we can make use out of our pool memberships this year. Now I want to see from the kids who here is old enough to jump into the pool by themselves. Who still needs to jump in with mommy or daddy? (laughs) So Patrick is only two. My son is only two. And he's not old enough to go in by himself no matter what he thinks. And he would actually, he would be scared to go in by himself if we weren't in the water, or if a trusted adult wasn't in the water. I'm still wondering if I count as a trusted adult. So he stands at the edge of the pool and will jump to me. Now when we had him in his first swim class, they would have us sit him on the edge of the pool while we sang Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall, Humpty Dumpty had a great fall, and at fall, predictably, the kids would come into the water. Now, the first time we did this, we got all the way through the end of fall, and Patrick did nothing. And a couple seconds went by, and Patrick did nothing. And all of the other kids did nothing, until we finally had to coax all of them in. But when he jumped in, he found out that I would catch him. And so the second time that we did this exercise, before we got to the second stanza of Humpty Dumpty, Patrick was in the water. We didn't have to get to fall. We're just that humpty-dumpty sat on a wall, okay, I'm done sitting, I'm going in the water. Patrick learned to trust that I would catch him if he fell into the water. Jesus says that we need to trust God. And what we need to trust in is the fact that God will always have us covered. God will always catch us. In life, in death, and in life beyond death, we are God's. One way of reading these verses is based on ancient architecture, and if you're really curious, ask me after service and I'll tell you all about it, is that we are a part of God's family, God's household, and nothing can ever change that. Another read is that in heaven, we will have a place in God's community. Combine the two, and there's nothing that can happen in life and in death and in life beyond death that God does not have us covered for. And trusting in that will free us up to be blessed. You see, the church will ask you to do hard things as a part of discipleship. Jesus will ask you to do hard things if you want to follow him. God will call you to do hard things. Being a Christian isn't easy. Washing feet isn't easy. You have to lower yourself. You have to make yourself vulnerable. You have to turn the other cheek. You have to forgive. You have to offer grace and mercy. You have to love. Which means in this life, sometimes it appears that we don't win. But no matter what, no matter what happens in this world, in this life, in this culture, we are a part of God's family. We are God's. When we trust in that, when we believe in that, we are able to do those hard things. We are able to risk. We are able to put ourselves into uncomfortable positions in the name of God, knowing that nothing can take our place that we have in God's house. The next word I want to lift up is companion. Still in John 14, Jesus says, If you love me, keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. All this I have spoken while I was still with you, but the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all the things and remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you, I do not give as the world gives, do not let your hearts be troubled, and do not be afraid. I'm going to ask the kids to be honest with me for a second. Do you ever, whether at home or at school, need to be reminded of the rules I'm seeing a lot of, like, knowing looks from mother to child. (laughs) Like, yeah, you do. (laughs) Do you ever need to be reminded of the rules? Yes. It happens sometimes, doesn't it? We don't mean to. We just get so excited when we're playing, we forget that we're not supposed to do that one thing. And we just need a gentle reminder about what the rules are. I see it in my house all the time. I probably do it all the time. Well God knows us. God understands who we are. God made us this way. And God knows that sometimes we can forget certain things. Sometimes we forget the rules. Sometimes we forget to trust God. Sometimes we forget that we are a part of God's family and have the freedom to do things that make us blessed. It's not always that we are being malicious. It's that it's not always that we want to break the rules. It's just sometimes we forget. So God, knowing us, decides to send us an advocate, or another word, companion. I like the word companion. Someone to play with us, someone to hang out with us, and someone to gently remind us of the things that we need to remember. Once again, the world is going to tell us some things. The world is going to tell you about what makes you successful and what makes you a failure. The world is going to tell you all the things you need to fear. The world is going to tell you that these people are dangerous, or if you do this, you'll get hurt, or that you need 110 billion billion to retire. It's actually a real number. And if the world tells you this enough times, you'll start to believe that you can't wash feet, because what will happen if I risk myself and wash feet? It is then that our companion steps in to tell us that we are a part of God's family— that we are in God's household, that we are God's. And we can trust that. To tell us of the times that God has had our back before and to remind us of what it means to be blessed and to be happy in this life. The final word for us today is abide. Jesus says, I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. I'm going to say the magic words now. Who here is seen frozen? Frozen. A year ago, that would have gotten a much bigger reaction. Are we in a post-Frozen society? Is that what's happened? Who here loves Olaf? Everyone loves Olaf? How could you not love Olaf? Now, Olaf sings a song in the movie. There it is. Can we get it a little bit louder? (laughs) Who remembers what that song is? Can you, can, you, can you give me a in summer? No? Anyone want to be a brave soul? <laughs> so that song is silly and funny because Olaf, what is Olaf? A snowman. A snowman. He doesn't know what's going to happen to him in summer. He's singing about all the great things that a snowman will do in summer. What happens to snowmen in summer? They melt, right? That's what we call irony. That's how I like my irony served. Our last word today is abide. Every time I said remain there, other translations say abide. Jesus says that we are to abide in him. We are to remain in his love. Now, Jesus... Talks about vines and branches, which is great if you lived in an ancient agrarian culture. But we who lived through the craze that was frozen, perhaps for us a better metaphor could be Olaf. For Olaf to remain a snowman, he must abide in winter, he must remain in cold. If he goes into summertime, he will melt. The same is true for Christians. If we remain in Christ's love, if we surround ourselves in the love of Christ, then we can thrive. If our companion can keep reminding us to trust in God, to trust that we are a part of God's household and God's family, then we can remember that we are blessed. And we remember that even though we have to do hard things, like forgive or love or wash feet, we can do these things that will make us blessed. is the buzz Kids will blow the lion fuzz. And I'll be doing whatever snow does in, in summer. <laughs> it's a great movie. Finally, Jesus says, my command is this, love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. I want to end with this final command that Jesus gives his followers. So many times in so many epic stories, we don't get the final words of advice from the mentor to the would-be hero. I was going to write a list of examples here, but that seemed really spoilery. I figure I was safe with a movie made in the 70s, but, you know, books written a couple years ago. So imagine your own list. But here we get fi- Jesus' final words. Love each other. It seems so simple, right? But we have seen from the first scene in this act that love for Jesus is costly. What does love look like? Earlier, it meant washing feet. Soon, it's going to mean dying for his disciples. And that type of love, the love that Jesus calls us to, the love that Jesus commands of us, is really, really hard. It's hard for us to do. It's hard for us to show and yet it is expected of us. As you go from this place, Jesus is issuing a command to you. Love one another. Love one another as Jesus loves. Wash feet. Sacrifice. View others as infinitely more important than yourself. And as you go from this place to attempt to love like that, remember that it is only in loving others the way that Jesus does that we can be blessed and happy in this life. That even though it's hard, even though it's risky, even though it makes you vulnerable, trust that God will take care of you. We might, from time to time, forget that last part, but we have a companion to remind us. And all of this is only possible if we abide in Christ's love. Let us pray.